I was starting off in Job 1, 8 to 22. So open up your Bibles. Let's read. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship And said, Naked I am from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Next passage is 1 Peter 2.19. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering um, because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin And no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins, and in his body on the cross, 
um, in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Very good. I'm tempted to raise it higher. <laughs> I, um, it's been great to hear news of people serving around the place and uh, one of the great blessings to be a church community together is God's at work amongst us and changing lives and people participating. Some other good news to share is that, um, uh, as Jono said, this doesn't just happen because a few make it happen, all of us make it happen together. The same with the finances to make church happen. Finances here... There's not just some rich person who gives it all. It's all of us giving bits of our money as, as sacrificially as we're able. A couple of months ago, we talked about the fact that we were behind budget by about $150,000. Um, well, uh, by the end of uh, last month, we were only 30000 behind budget. So it's um, a massive decrease. People have been um, giving more and more, and that's been extraordinary and wonderful. What a blessing to be together with you. Um, we, we are still... Uh, so I'm being encouraged. We are still thirty grand behind budget, so keep giving and uh and just be alert to the fact that once we reach budget we'll put it up again and we'll keep doing that for the next 30 years 40 years 50 years so just settle in for that all right and you know why we keep doing that we want to reach more people for christ so we've just got to keep pressing that's the plan but lots to be encouraged by let me pray Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great blessing amongst us the way you are at work among so many um, we, we realise it's only by your grace and your kindness, but we are so thrilled to see your hand at work and pray, please, you do much more. Please do much more in our lives and among us. And uh, we pray that you might use this time now, uh, as we've heard the word read, as we've sung together, as we've encouraged one another, as we pray, as we now hear the word explained, that please, you might use this to change our lives too. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are entering into one of the most uh, extraordinary books of the Bible, and I just want to note, uh, who did that? Did any of you do that? Did you sneak in here and put that up, any of you? Isn't that fantastic? Do you know what it is? Yeah, it's very obvious, isn't it? It's a, it's a storm, it's a storm. And we're, we'll be looking at a book of the Bible, the book of Job, that uh, has this extraordinary sense of tumultuousness about it, storm about it. And uh, it's a powerful image, it's uh, a powerful book. It's a very unusual book. Uh, there's only the first couple of chapters of the book where anything really happens. Um, the first two chapters is where all the action occurs. And then from chapter three on, it's uh, largely just speeches um, by Job, the man Job, and then his counsellors, comforters, who aren't very comforting. Uh, we'll see that as time goes on. And then the book finishes with some uh, speeches by God himself, which are among the most profound, deep, life-changing words you'll see in the Bible. It's just uh, it's phenomenal uh, what we're going to be going through together. It is, um, it is an unusual book, but it's truly one of the most beautiful books of the Bible. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever done any poetry. Um, I kind of like poetry, and I used to re- make my kids read poetry at the dinner table, which they, of course, delighted in. <laughs> They're always glad for me to do that. But uh, there's just the way God puts words together is a beautiful and rich thing. Um, and so the book of Job has much of that. But it's also a beautiful book because it provides some of the most important helps that we can have to live a life that's fallen, broken and hurting. Now, I know many of you are in the context of pain 
Uh, it's just a sad reality of the world we're in. And you may have come tonight with a, with a kind of a load of hurt and suffering and pain, um, anxiety, depression, fears, uh, uncertainties, all kinds of crises that might be in your life. Um, I want to encourage you tonight that as you come to this book tonight, but over the weeks ahead, there will be blessing. There will be a gift of God. And at the very least, God will bring this blessing to you in the sense that you're not alone. That the suffering you're going through, others have been there before and they have been comforted by God in that midst. That can be a help uh, to hear that deep, godly men, uh, that's Job, of course, has felt what he feels, which will be far deeper than perhaps you've even felt yet, but may one day share, and yet has been sustained through it all. Have a look with me at uh, Job chapter 7. There's some beautiful language. Well, some beautiful. there's, there's some uh, striking language about the experience of Job as he puts it down for us. Have a look at chapter 7, verse 3. So I've been allotted months of futility, and nights of misery have been assigned to me. When I lie down, I think, how long before I get up again? The night drags on, and I toss and I turn until dawn. What you have here is the picture of a man who's got such stress and anxiety and despair and hurt and grief that he can't sleep anymore. And so he lies awake all night, counting the minutes as they go past, wondering when the dawn will finally come, and he tosses and he turns. This is a deeply honest book, it's a deeply real book about the fact of life in our world, and I don't doubt some of you are experiencing some of these things as well. But as I say, to hear that someone's been there before you and has been sustained by God is in itself already something of a comfort. And to hear that someone's been here will be a comfort for you if you've not yet been in this place, but one day will be, and most of us will be. Unless the Lord takes you, uh, most of us will live long enough to see those that we dearly love die, suffer. We might ourselves go through dreadful things. This book will be a great help to us. But it'll be a great help to us in deeper ways. It's going to be a help to us by confronting us. It's going to hit us hard, and particularly tonight. It's going to confront us in the way humanity thinks about itself and in the way popular Christianity thinks about itself. This will be very deep. It's going to be massive. But I want to encourage you that by the end of tonight, we're going to move from confrontation to comfort. So hang in there for that, the comfort that emerges from the confrontation. But I do want to say at the warning at the outset, it will be confronting and some amongst us tonight might find this very difficult. Uh, And it will feel like you've been led into surgery, which is what God will take us through, an act of surgery, without anaesthetic. So I just want to, uh, I want to warn you, that's where we're going. Grit your teeth, get ready for it. But it'll be surgery that'll be good for us. I want to promise that. That we'll come out the other side far better equipped to live a life that's real and deep and solid and strong. A life that can help others and be sustained ourselves. Yes? You hear where we're going tonight? 
Well, let me jump into it. Come with me to Job chapter 1. Let's go through the account. I'll make a few comments on the way and then I'll draw attention to the confrontation we're going to hit from it. Look at the first couple of verses. The first five, uh, first five verses are really an, a brief introduction to the person of Job. The first couple of pieces there in verse 1 are just very brief and simple. He lived in the land of Uz. The land of Uz, as best we can tell, is east of Israel. Uh, his name is Job. We're not told when this happened. Many people think because of various reasons it's very ancient. Uh, could be back in the times of Abraham, that kind of period. Which, if, if you're not aware of Christian, if you've not been a Christian very long, Jesus is 2,000 years ago. And this could well have been 1,500 years before that. Maybe longer. Uh, it's hard to pin down the date but it doesn't seem to matter that we know the date we're not told but now we come to a couple of very important pieces we're introduced about Job these are very important for the rest of the uh, book as we go through and the two pieces that we're told about are this um, that he is very good and he's richly blessed materially Now you need to keep hold of those truths because they'll follow all the way through the book. They're essential to making sense of all that follows. He is very good. You'll see the second half of verse 1. This man was blameless, upright, he feared God and shunned evil. Four little ideas that capture what the author wants us to know about. He is a very godly man. Okay. Um, Now godly, all of these words don't mean he is innocent of sin. You read later in the book and you'll find that he is aware of his own sin, but he is a very godly man. And he's richly blessed, where the blessing that he experienced is the Old Testament kind of blessing, not the New Testament kind of blessing. I don't know if you know this, but there's a shift between Old Testament to New Testament. In the Old Testament, the blessing is material, external. In the New Testament, blessing spiritual and internal. In heaven, it'll be both. But there is a shift that occurs between the Testaments where in the Old Testament, the blessing, he is richly blessed, he is richly blessed materially. So we're told about that blessing. He has seven sons and three daughters, which is understood to be the ideal family. He owns lots of livestock, camels, uh, lots of uh, servants. He was, we're told, the greatest man among all the people of the East. He is very godly and good and he is richly blessed. Now, this is just underlined a little bit further for us when you hit verses 4 and 5. What you find here is that we're told of the fact that his children, his sons, used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays. Hey, they celebrated birthdays, just worth noting, back in the ancient world. And they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified, for his children to be purified. Early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. What's the point of being told verses 4 and 5? He is very good and very godly. His religion is a heart religion. He is not just superficial. He is deeply concerned to honour God and live for God and that his children might live for God and he's deeply aware that sin needs to be dealt with. He's a godly, godly man. That's what's those two truths, godly and richly blessed. Now there's the introduction. Verse 6 is where the action happens and we start to come closer to the issues of confrontation. Let me go through the action and then we'll hit the confrontation. We're given to see in verse 6 a courtroom scene. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord God And Satan also came with them and the Lord has a conversation with Satan. He asks him, where have you been? Uh, And Satan says, 
going to and fro on the earth. One of the first questions that people ask at this point is, is this literally true? Is there a place in heaven above us somewhere where there's a, literally a courtroom and where God sits and people come to him? Is it li- Look, uh, I, there's a lot that could be said at this point, but just to say this, it's true. What is being said here communicates truth. Whether it's literally true in the sense that the conversation happens with verbalised words and all that kind And a little hint that there's some more complexity going on is the Lord God who is all-knowing and all-seeing asks uh, Satan, where have you been? Do you get the little oddity? I mean, as if God doesn't know. So you've got something happening here that you need to be alert to. It is true, what's happening, I take it, God is using human form to communicate divine truths to us. They have a conversation. And God then says, the Lord says, verse 8 to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. He is very godly. You see, it just keeps being emphasised. It's important that it's emphasised because all that's about to happen has got nothing to do with him being judged by God. Deserving it from God. That's critical as we go through the book. Um, Joe, the, the Satan says to him, uh, verse 9, he brings an accusation. Now the word Satan in the original language in Hebrew is just the word accuser. And as some amongst you have pointed out, the, the actual literal language is the accuser, the Satan, is presented before the Lord. And so Satan brings an accusation. The accuser brings an accusation about, well, verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. You think he's awesome, that he loves you. But does he fear you for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and a household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to his face. You see, uh, do you see what the accusation is? The accuser is saying, Job only loves you because you give him lots of good stuff. If you stop giving him lots of good stuff, he won't love you anymore. Quick summary of the accusation. So God gives him permission, verse 12. Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And so Satan, having been given permission by the Lord God, goes out and piece by piece removes everything Job has except his life. And you get there all the way down to verse 19, piece by piece everything is taken from him until verse 19, his children are all killed. It's devastating. It's an extraordinary thing that occurs to this man. Gone. I don't know if you've lost anyone close to you, but to have your whole family taken and everything you own. Look at his response in verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. His response is exemplary. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be, I will not curse the Lord, is what he says. And we are told that Job did not sin by charging God with any wrongdoing. 
as Satan accused him of being the one who would. Now, chapter 2 starts with the uh, courtroom scene repeated. Satan is now again before the Lord and we have the similar conversation and the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job, verse 3? And listen to the end of verse 3. He still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. So it hasn't happened like you said it would happen, Satan. And Satan says, skin for skin. A man will give all he has for his own life. So stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and he will surely curse you. You took everything from outside of him, but if you now take away his health, that'll change things. So the Lord says to Satan, very well, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. Satan went out and afflicted him with sores from the soles to the crown. He undermined his health. We're again given Job's response there in verse 10. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this again, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, what do we make of it? There's the account, the action that's occurred. What do we make of it? I want to suggest to you tonight there's three things and they're massive. They're massive. These three things are confronting but they are, each of them, keys to us finding comfort in the world we live in. Let me give you the first one. It's God's sovereignty. Think with me about this incident. Who's responsible for the suffering that Job endures? Now, don't answer it, don't say anything, but think, who is responsible for the suffering that Job endures? There's an easy answer to that question, and then there's the Bible answer. The easy answer is, who's responsible? Satan. He's the one who incites God. He's the one who goes out from the presence of God. He's the one who seems to be the agent who takes away all that Job has. Um, And God himself in chapter 2 verse 3 lays the blame at Satan in some senses. He says, though you incited me without reason. But notice with care that the biblical answer is far more complex. Look at verse 11 and look very carefully at it. This is Satan talking. But now, you know, he only loves you because you give him stuff. Verse 11, but now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Who is the one to stretch out the hand and strike him? God. Extraordinary. And verse 12, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Now think with me about this. Um, Satan goes out, but he only does what God permits him to do. So who's responsible for the suffering? When God permits something he could have otherwise forbidden, he permits it because... He chooses to let it happen. He wills it in some sense. If he has the power to prohibit something happening, and he clearly does because he's able to say to Satan, you can do this but not that. If God has the power to to forbid something happening and yet lets it happen, it's because he has chosen to have it happen. Who wills, is responsible for the suffering that Job endures? Satan, evil and malevolent, and God, 
for some reason. And look at Job's response there in chapter 1, verse 21. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Who took everything away from him? The Lord did. And in this, Satan did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, noting this more difficult piece in what's happened is hugely confronting, especially to popular Christianity. And the Western world is full of popular Christianity. Popular Christianity, uh, this kind of thinking that I'm just drawing your attention to in the text here, does not fit easily with how popular Christianity wants to think about God or think about suffering. Popular Christianity lives with a kind of dualism, a, a two-ness, where there's God, good, Satan, bad, and they're in an arm wrestle together. And sometimes Satan's pulling God over and getting bad stuff to happen. Sometimes God fights back and gets good stuff to happen. Sometimes Satan gets the upper hand and bad stuff happens. When the flood and the storm and the fire, Satan's got the upper hand. But when the rescue happens and the sun comes out, it's God finally breaking forth to bring beautiful and good things. And so the wrestle goes on, says popular Christianity. Brothers and sisters, this is incredibly popular. And there's a reason for this simple thinking. Um, the, one of the reasons is, of course, God is a God who is good. He's holy, he's righteous, he's too pure to look on evil. He's not the author of sin. And so it makes sense to go, well, if he's not the author of sin, he can't be doing it. Someone else must be doing it, someone who's evil. And it's a very natural way to think about the world when you look around and see good and evil. Outside of the Christian faith, outside of the Jewish faith, Pagan religions have always thought there were two forces at war with each other. It's a very natural way to think. But this simple dualism does not survive Bible reading. When you read the first two chapters of Job, you find that God permits. And if he could have forbidden and chose not to forbid, it's because he chose to have it happen. This is inescapable. But it's seen very clearly elsewhere. Come with me to Isaiah 45. Keep your finger there in Job. In Isaiah 45. Verse 5. Now this needs a certain voice when you read it to get the sense of what's being said here. So let me put the voice on. Isaiah 45 verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. There is no arm wrestle in the sky, says God. There's no other power that competes with me, that threatens me, that's in a tussle with me in some sense in which I'm a mercier of. I am God, there is no other. I am the great Lord of the universe. And if you come down there to verse 7, look what he says next. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things because I am the great sovereign Lord of the universe. This is a theme that's repeated in numbers of places throughout the Bible. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14, chase it up later, you'll find reference to good things and bad things. And we're told that God has made... Um, both of these things, one as well as the other. 
in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamity and good things come? There is no sense in the Bible in which God only does the nice things and Satan overcomes him to do the bad things and God then spends his life cleaning up the mess to try and bring good. That is not the picture of the Bible. God is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Satan only does what he does because God permits him to do it, which therefore means God chooses that it will happen. Through the agency of an evil, malevolent force, yes. This is hugely confronting to popular Christianity. God gives and God takes away. He rules the universe, all of our existence, as an absolute monarch. The only true power. There is no other power that threatens or competes. It's confronting because when you start thinking into this, you realise that the God who is there is not soft and warm and cuddly. He is the supreme Lord of the universe. Now, what do you do with a God like that? The only thing you've got that you can do to a God like that is bow the knee. Humble yourself before him. Whereas popular Christianity rebels and rejects and says, how can we ever love that kind of God? If we see God as powerful like this, it threatens to make him oppressive over us. And we don't want a God who's scary and oppressive over us. Well, I'm sorry, but that's what the Bible says God is like. He is a powerful God. The beginning of a wisdom is fear the Lord. He is terrifying. In part, our world doesn't want this kind of God because it wants a God that it can control. It wants a God that we can bring out when we need him and put him back when we don't. But this more terrifying God will not be treated like that. This is incredibly confronting. But it is also a source of our only hope of comfort. If you want comfort in this world, knowing these things is the key. And I'll show you how that's the case at the end. Hold on. Let me take you to the second one. The second one is huge as well. It's God's glory. We've looked at God's sovereignty. Now let's look at God's glory. Come back with me to Job chapter 1. And look at that conversation that occurs in verse 9 where Satan speaks to God. And look very closely at the accusation the accuser brings. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You'll bless the works of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread out through the land. Take it all away and he'll curse you. What's, what's Satan saying? He's saying, Job only loves you because you give him lots of good stuff. He only loves you because you buy his love. Now think with me. Who's Satan actually having a go at? Who's Satan actually accusing here? Job or God? Who's he actually having a go at? Now let me give you an illustration to make sense of this. Just imagine an older man, not a very attractive man. man like, well... Someone who might look well like me. An older man, who, uh, now it's not me, but he, an older man gets, he gets a woman to say yes to marry him. He persuades this woman to marry him. She expresses affection and enthusiasm for the marriage, though he's older. Someone comes along to the man and says, do you know what? She only said yes because you're wealthy. If you didn't have money, she never would have said yes. 
Now, who's that person having a go at? And I want you to vote. Let's see if we can get this one. Who thinks that person's having a go at the man? Hands up. Who thinks he's having a go at the woman? Who thinks he's having a go at both? You didn't know that was coming as an option, did you? I know, that's, that's one of the problems, isn't it? But um, it is both. But preeminently, it's the man. She, she would never look at you if you didn't have money. Which is to say... Not much. You haven't got anything going for you except your money. And no one would love you for who you are except that you are wealthy. Now you picture that back into the context of Satan speaking to God. He only loves you because of your money. He only loves you because you give him lots of stuff. Do you see it? Satan is accusing God of not being worthy of human praise and worship. No one would praise you and worship you for who you are except that you buy it from them. You with me? Now here's the deal. This is what this book's about. This is the big thing of the book of Job. This book is about God before it's about Job. It's about God's honour and the vindication of his honour before it's about Job and the comfort he gets in suffering. You, you won't understand the book of Job until you'll appreciate this whole thing is driven by a concern that God has to vindicate his honour, that he is worth praising even if he doesn't give people stuff, that there is something about who he is in himself that's glorious and honourable and wonderful that people would be drawn to even if he doesn't give them lots of stuff. That's what this whole book's about. It is massive, massive, massive. Popular Christianity is totally outraged by this concept of Job. Why? Because as it begins to notice this astonishing thing, it starts to see, are you therefore suggesting that God takes Job through all the suffering that he goes through, takes everything away from him, puts him in a terrible context. Are you suggesting that God puts Job through all of that so that God might be vindicated and seen to be glorious? That Satan's accusation might be seen to be of no account? Yes. Yes. What does that make God seem like to you? Who does he think he is? God or something? It starts to make God seem to be using Job for the sake of his own glory. Popular Christianity won't have that. It's horrified by that because in the mind of popular Christianity, there is nothing more important than human happiness. God's glory is not more important. God is not more important. Humans being happy is the most important thing. And if there's a God, his most important thing that he must be about is making us happy. And so the thought that there might be a book in the Bible that suggests God uses Job for the sake of his own glory is offensive. It's deeply confronting. And what the book of Job does for us, it uncovers a kind of Christianity that has never come to terms with the fact of who God really is. And has never come to terms with the fact of who we are. It's never come to terms with the fact of Isaiah 45, that it's the Lord God who is the potter and we are the clay. Read on through Isaiah 45. 
Romans chapter 9, he is the potter, we are the clay. He is free, Romans chapter 9, to do as he pleases. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 4, he's free to do as he pleases as the powers in heaven and the peoples on the earth, because he is God, we are not. Popular Christianity comes to God and it still clings to its pride. It still clings to its idea that we are the most important creatures and if God's there, he's to look after us. Instead of realising that's the very essence of sin. That's the very nature of sin. The very essence of sin is to think the world is about me, that I'm the most important. If there is a God, he revolves around me. And the very essence of conversion is to come to terms with the fact that he's at the centre, not me, and I live for him. Listen to what the Bible says at various parts. I am God, there is no other, Isaiah. I made you for my glory, Colossians chapter 1. I saved you for my glory, John chapter 17. My glory I will not give to another, Ezekiel chapter 30. It just goes on and on through the scriptures. God is driven by his glory. He has made you that he might be more glorious. He has saved you that he might find glory. He redeems and rescues Israel for his own glory. Conversion is actually the experience of seeing who God truly is, the centre of all things. Repentance is about coming to terms with myself, not at the centre, but him at the centre and turning to bow down to him as God and putting my crown at his feet. Are you able to say that he is the potter and we're the clay? Are you able to say that God has the right to do with me as he chooses? Are you able to say that? Do you see how confronting this is to popular Christianity? But there's huge comfort in it as well. And I want to get to that at the end. Let me do the third one much quicker. This accusation that Satan brings is against God, that you're not worthy of people's praise. There's nothing in you inherent that makes good, but you're only buying their love. But it's also against Job and his faith. It's an accusation that claims Job's faith is insincere. It's superficial, it's the faith of popular Christianity. Job only loved God because of what Job gets out of it, not because he loves God actually. And it raises the question, this very accusation raises the question about our faith. How much are we like the accuser's understanding of Job? Why are you a Christian? Why did you come to Jesus? What kind of faith do you have? Is it the kind that's only interested in God because of the blessings you will get from him? Is it that you feel lonely and lost and you just want a friend? Why have you come to Jesus? Now asking that question, the answer's complex actually. Because God does bless his people. When you come to him, he blesses you. It is the most blessed experience to become a friend of God who pours out. Well, are you saying you can't come for those blessings when he actually does bless us? He says, come to me all who labour and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Come to me for rest. He says to come to him for all that he... What are you saying here? It's complex. And I'm going to give you an illustration which I hope makes sense of all of this. It comes from an older preacher, a man called Spurgeon. And uh, Spurgeon talks about a courtroom, again, another courtroom scene where there's a king. 
And a gardener, this is back in Spurgeon's day when this was the nature of life, a gardener comes in who uh, has tilled the earth and produced all kinds of vegetables and fruits and so on. And he loves the king. And he comes into the throne room and he says, King, uh, I honour you. I'm so deeply full of respect for you. And I want to give you a gift expressing my honour. I've got the first fruits of all that I've made. I've made this carrot. This is Spurgeon, all right? He says, this is massive carrot. I want to give you my greatest bit of fruit. And the king goes, the king goes, that is awesome. I'm going to give you another 10 acres of land that you can keep farming. And the man says, ah, oh, praise the king and leaves. There's a nobleman standing in the courtroom who sees all, sees all of this happening. And he watches the man come in and give him this massive carrot. And the king, in response to receiving the carrot, gives him a bunch of land. And so the nobleman says to himself, I get how it works. I give the king something wonderful and he gives me something more wonderful. And so he comes to the king the next day and he brings his greatest horse, his finest horse and lays it in front of the king and says, just an expression of my desire for you and so on. And the king does this. He thanks the nobleman for the horse and sends him off. And the nobleman is confused and hurt and says, the guy with the carrot, when he gave you a gift, you gave him a block of land. When I've given you my horse, you've given me nothing except thanks. And the king says this, that gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Think on that. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. You gave it to me, but you only gave it to me to get something from me. So actually you were giving it to yourself. But when you give it to me as an act of genuine honour and praise and worship of the God who is, he's the God who blesses, but he's the God who sees your heart. And he can distinguish between the heart that's in it for yourself and the heart that's in it for him. Why have you come to Christ? Have you come to him like the gardener? Or have you come to him like the nobleman? You see, Job challenges us at this deepest level. Have we come to God because of what we get from him? Or have we come to him because of who he is? The God who is worthy of all praise. The Lord of the universe, who's created all things and given us life, breath. Have we come because of who he is? the great and glorious God. Why have you come? Now, it's complex. Because you can come to God with mixed motives. You can come to God wanting heaven and wanting what God gives because you're terrified of his judgment. You can come wanting. And in the midst of that coming, have another motive that says, I want to actually be here for you and your glory, but... I'm mixed with other things. And you know what God says at that point? That's okay. Because I'm full of grace. I'll receive you as you are. Knowing that I plan to work in your life to transform and change you, to be like that gardener. You see, the bottom line is we need to aim towards being like Job, who's able to say, the Lord gives 
and the Lord takes away and yet his name is still blessed. I will bless his name even when the storehouses are empty, when when the vine no longer buds. I will praise his name because of who he is. That's the journey God is taking us on. You may not be there yet, but he is humble and gracious and will have you on that journey with him. You know, there's two very different things. There's popular Christianity and there's biblical Christianity. Popular Christianity pursues the things of God only in so far as it makes my life better. It wants to live with an adventure and bring God along with me. It wants to do the fun stuff that I've always wanted to do and bring God along with me. That's popular Christianity. Biblical Christianity dies for Christ. It takes up its cross and denies itself to live for him who died for us. It sacrifices self to the things of God and in that finds life. Everything that you've hoped for. But you only find everything you hope for as you give it up. You see the complex, beautiful thing as you come to God for who he is. Confronting the sovereignty of God, the glory of God, the nature of our faith. Confronting. But how is it a comfort? I promised I'd finish and I've only got a couple of minutes so we're doing well. Let me tell you how it's a comfort. The sovereignty of God. The God we follow, the God we worship, the God we put our trust in through the merits of Jesus is the absolute sovereign over all things. There's no other power that can threaten him or overpower him. So whatever happens to you, whatever happens to you, it's not because God let go of the wheel. It's not because God dropped the ball. It's not because God was overpowered. He's still in control. Do you know why that's a comfort? It's so much better to be in the hands of a loving God who sent his son to die for you than to be in the hands of a malevolent power who's malicious and hateful. Whatever happens to you, you can know that God is sovereign over it in some mysterious way. And so things are still in his hands and you are in the hands of a good and loving God who is working his purposes and cannot be thwarted. You cannot be taken from his hands. He will bring you to the end. The sovereignty of God is a great comfort in the midst of the horrors of life. When you suffer great loss, you can know that he is with you there. The glory of God, how is that a comfort? How is the glory of God a comfort to me? How is the fact that he is about his glory before he's about me a comfort to me? Well, let me try and explain this one. What is one of the things that makes God most glorious? What is he most honoured in? One of the things that brings God most honour is that he is gracious to sinners. It's to his glory and honour that he is gracious and forgiving. He holds that as an incredibly important value about himself, that I'm the God of love and grace and mercy. And so it's his honour is at stake in being gracious, which means this, that if you come to him miserable though you feel you are, it's it's his honour and glory at stake in receiving you. Which means he'll receive you not because you're worth it, because it's his honour to do that. Do you see? You're secured by the fact that he cares most about his glory, which means he'll be most committed to forgiving you. 
Because it's to his honour that he does, do you see? So that when you're lying on your bed at night and you are tossing and turning with grief and anxiety and you're hating your life, feeling like you're a worm and not a woman, you're miserable and not worthy of anyone or anything, when you're crying out to God and you wonder what God could ever do with you, your only hope at that point is that God is committed to his glory and his glory is seen in showing love to the unworthy, which means he will never reject you when you come to him. He will never push you aside if you come to him in humble repentance. Your confidence is grounded not in you, but in the honour that he has in forgiving sinners. Do you see what I'm saying? Your confidence is in who he is. He will receive you and he will keep you to the end because his honour is at stake. His honour is bound up with you being kept to the end. Your confidence is in him, not yourself. And so we have comfort because of the book of Job and because of what God is about and who he is. Let me pray for us. No, let me not pray for us. I want you to stop and think. Is what I want. I'm going to pray in just a moment actually. I want, if the musicians that you guys are playing for us can come up, what I want you to do is just, I don't know if closing your eyes helps you, but just take some time to think. How are you with this God? How have you come to this God? Have you got popular Christianity or are you like that gardener? How are you thinking about your relationship? Where's your hope? Take some time to think. Let me pray. Father, we, uh, we come conscious that uh, these things are confronting and uh, we come aware that we've got so many mixed motives, we're so messed up, we're sinners, but we come so grateful that you are the sovereign God who cannot be thwarted, who when you set your mind to something will achieve it and we thank you that you're the God who takes pride in being the forgiving God whose honour is at stake in forgiving repentant sinners. And we cling to that truth, uh, that you will receive those who come to you, fallen, messed up, worthless though they are, because your honour is at stake in it. We thank you for that. We thank you that because of your honour, you have sent your son to die for us, to seek and save the lost, and that you will keep us to the end. Please help us find our confidence in you and not ourselves. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.